It's a joy to gather with you all today. I love just worshiping and songs together. Jesus, and I pray that we continue in worship through the text um, now. We're back in Mark, as was mentioned. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joel McCarty, and I'm the pastor of Mission Alive here. also serve as a part of the elder team. Um, Jamie Nettles, our pastor of preaching and vision, um, the one who preaches on a regular basis, and he'll be back up here uh, next week with us. Um, as I said, we're back in Mark. We took a week off during Easter. Um, to just focus intensely on the resurrection, as we really do every week. But um, definitely for Easter, we looked at that. And so now we're back where we left off a couple weeks ago in Mark chapter 11. Now, I'm really excited about today's passage. Um, I'm excited every time I have the opportunity to stand up here and proclaim Jesus, um, but especially this week. The primary story in our passage is what you just heard read. It's when Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple, as it's commonly known. It's one of those passages that is well known, but I think commonly misunderstood. And apparently the story is so popular that it's even meme-worthy. So I've seen a couple of these memes floating around on social media. Maybe you've seen them. Here's the first one. If anyone ever asks you what would Jesus do, remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. Right? Hilarious, right? Yeah. Here's another one. Whenever someone asks you what would Jesus do, remind them that freaking out and flipping tables is a viable option. Right? Same, same gist. Um, these memes are actually pretty witty, funny, and cute. Right? Um, but I actually believe they're pretty far from being an accurate exegesis of this text, right? There's some half-truth here, right? For sure, Jesus is not just this kind of pacifistic, hippie, white dude with a nice blonde perm that you can have kind of riding along with you as you go through life, right? Like, just, just encourage you and be like, yeah, go get him. You're a great person, right? Um, but he's also not this, as this meme seems to suggest, and most of the people I see share it, a temperamental, angry man who freaks out when he doesn't get his way, as these memes seem to suggest. If you've shared one of these, I apologize for offending you. Um, I guess, really, though, what I'm trying to say is that Jesus doesn't fit into any of our presuppositions. And I hope that today we're going to lean into this story. And by the end of it, hopefully, you'll see that Jesus did not just go into the temple flipping tables and driving people out with the whip to give you justification the next time you want to be a jerk to someone who makes you angry. Like, that's not the point of this passage. There's something much more beautiful and much more terrifying than all of that going on. And I pray that by the end of our message today, we'll all have a more biblically faithful way of seeing what Mark is trying to teach us through this ancient story. So, uh, before we go into today's text, I do have one main point for you. I'm going to tell you this up front. I don't have a bunch of points. Like, the text is, is here to say one thing, and it's that King Jesus comes to remove every barrier to God. We're going to see through this text that King Jesus is passionate about removing every barrier to God in both the heart of systems and individuals, even if it means cleansing or cursing his own temple and even his own body. So let's dive right into our text in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. We're actually going to back up to verse 11 to get the context. And so Mark chapter 11, verse 11, we'll also have the verses on the screen for you here. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jamie preached on this a couple weeks ago, and it was the triumphant entry into Jerusalem where Jesus came riding on a donkey. It was kind of anticlimactic uh, because he comes in, and nothing really seems to happen. And this is, this is what happens. He gets off the donkey, he walks into the temple, and he just kind of looks around and takes in what's going on. And then he goes back to Bethany. So Bethany's a couple miles away. This is what's going on this last week of Jesus' life. Is he's doing ministry in Jerusalem, but he's going to stay the night probably with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany and kind of walking the couple miles every day. So why does that matter? Well, we need to remember that Mark is intentionally transitioning us into this story about the temple. That's why he mentions it, because at the center of our story today is the temple. 
He wants us to know that what Jesus is about to do is very calculated. He's already seen and experienced what's going on. He calmly spends time looking at it. Then he goes back to Bethany. They stay the night, and the next day they're walking back toward Jerusalem, and that's where our text begins today in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany on their way back to Jerusalem, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So before we get to the story of the cleansing of the temple, which was read a minute ago, we get this story about this fig tree. Now Mark does what scholars call a Mark and sandwich. We've seen him do this before. Basically, he starts a story takes it up to a certain point and stops and then inserts a story that's meant to be the meat of the, the text and then he comes back to that story and the surrounding story serves as a commentary or kind of a lens with which to view what's going on in the middle story. And so that's what he's going to do here. Now, back to this fig tree being cursed, let's admit it, at face value, this story seems a little weird. Right? Poor fig tree, right? He's cursed. Also, we know there's birds. We're going to acknowledge that. We all know they're there. They're here for like three weeks every year meant to acknowledge that at the beginning, just if you're wondering, like, do they know there's birds in their vents? Yes, we know they're there, um, and we hope to get rid of them at some point. Just want to acknowledge that, since everybody's hearing it. Um, So, (laughs) anyways, some people have thought this kind of looks bad on Jesus, right? He curses this fig tree. Mark even tells us it's not the season for figs. So, why is he cursing this fig tree? Was Jesus just kind of hangry, right? Like, we've been there, we're hungry, we don't get our way, or they mess up our order, or we find out that our order wasn't in the bag, and we basically do, like, want to flip the tables, right? Like, we're upset. Is this what's going on? Is he just temperamental and reactive as some people seem to take this story to mean? But if we look closer, we see that's not at all what's going on. See, Mark actually wants us to look deeper, which is why he gives the parenthetical statement that it wasn't the season for figs. He's acknowledging for all the readers that knew this was Passover week, when they read the story, they're going to be like, well, it wasn't the season for figs. They would have already known that. So Mark enters and he's acknowledging, yes, like I know that that's not the point. So that means there's another takeaway that he wants us to get from this story couple key things Mark says. In verse 13, he says that Jesus sees in the distance a fig tree and leaf. The point Mark wants us to see is that regardless of what season it was, if a fig tree had leaves, that was the marker that it should have also had fruit. There were certain uh, trees that bloomed out of season. There were also um, certain trees that bloomed early. And so Mark is saying that if, if a tree has leaves, it should also have fruit. And from a distance, this seemed to be the case. It was flowery, it had leaves. But upon closer inspection, the only thing on the tree are the leaves. It looked good, but it wasn't actually bearing fruit. And maybe we're getting a hint into our story today. See, this curse on the tree wasn't as much of a curse as it was a statement of fact in revealing the tree's true character. The fig tree looked good, so Jesus wants to reveal to the world what it really is, that it's worthless and dead at its core and fruitless. We remember that the story about the fig tree is just a foreshadowing of what we're about to see about the temple. So we're getting a hint now. So Mark abruptly ends the story about the tree, moves on to the next major section about the temple, and it's where we read from a few minutes ago. Mark wastes no time in verse 15 to tell us that Jesus was on a calculated mission. They came to Jerusalem, Mark eleven fifteen. He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. People would use this temple as a shortcut to do their own thing. He eventually calls everyone involved a bunch of robbers. We see that in other gospel accounts, he uses a whip to do this. So at first glance, 
it seems like Jesus just kind of flies off the handle and goes off. These memes seem to be kind of accurate. There's a few things we need to see and remember. First off, remember that Jesus came into the temple the night before. That's a really important detail that Mark inserts. If he was just kind of upset and, and flying off the handle with no calculation and no strategy here, he would have went off the night before when he came into the temple and saw all this going on. But he's got a bigger, bigger purpose here. See, his main point of causing the commotion is not just to anger people. This court of the Gentiles where this takes place, we're going to talk about it in a minute, was 35 acres. This was massive. He didn't drive out everybody. He didn't cause everybody to go outside the temple. He didn't stop everybody from walking through. The main point is to get attention so then he can go to the word of God and start to teach on the main purpose of the temple. There's an end game he has going on here. So to understand what Jesus is going to teach from his word, which he's about to do in verse 17, we need to understand the purpose of the temple. Now, I wish I had time to explain the whole history of the temple. Go study it. It's amazing. But for our purposes today, a couple things you need to know. First, you need to know that the temple, and we've talked about this before, it was a place that represented God dwelling with humanity, which was made possible by the sacrificial worship of his people. The other thing you need to know is that it was never just meant to serve Israel. This is important for you to understand. It was supposed to be a witness to the world and a place where people from all nations could come and worship the one true God, Yahweh. This temple was supposed to be a snapshot of what Israel was supposed to be to the entire world, a kingdom of priests who spread God's glory to all nations. This temple had what I've already referenced called the Court of the Gentiles, a specific designated place where immigrants could come worship Yahweh sacrificing animals to be made right with God and come near his presence. And in Jesus' day, when our story takes place, this court of the Gentiles, where immigrants from all nations should have been allowed to come in and offer sacrifice, quietly pray and worship Yahweh, had instead become a circus. Over time, because of desire for greed and gain, vendors had moved closer and closer to the prime spots for selling the animal sacrifices and exchanging currency for traveling foreigners. Eventually, they move all the way inside the court of the Gentiles to get the best spots, to set up shop in a place that was supposed to be a quiet house of prayer to Yahweh. And what Jesus walks into the night before when he comes into the temple would have been something similar to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. People are grappling for position. Except you need to add tens of thousands of bleeding animals to the chaos. I'm not exaggerating that number. Josephus records over 200,000 animals slain in Passover week one year. This had become an absolute circus. And it was especially exploiting to the foreigners and those who were poor who had come there to worship. Not only that, they had marked up prices for the sacrifices people were to offer, especially the ones that were there for poor people, sometimes 16 times the amount they would normally be charged for. This especially exploited and targeted the poor and hindered them from freely worshiping. Then they jacked up the exchange rate, which especially exploited and hindered the immigrant from the same thing. This was supposed to be a place where all people from all nations could come and worship Yahweh freely because of the sacrifice of blood and animals. Though temporal, it provided them a way to become near to God. And now instead, it had become a place of greed, exploitation, prejudice, and ethnic, cultural, and national pride. And to top it all off, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes were leading this racket. The ones who were supposed to be priests to the people. So now maybe we can begin to get a sense of the righteous indignation that Jesus 
might have felt the night before when he walked into the temple. This feeling that was brought on by witnessing all of this taking place in the the temple, the very place where God's glory was supposed to reside and where all people were supposed to be able to come and, and get a glimpse and a taste of this beauty and this glory. But just as the fig tree From a distance, this temple looked as if it had it all together, as if it was fulfilling its purpose. It looked flowery. It looked busy. There was buying and selling. Sacrifice was taking place. I mean, the temple numbers were growing and people were coming in and out. God's presence must be there. But just like the fig tree, upon closer inspection, the reality was far different from perception. And just as Jesus revealed that the fig tree was truly dead and bearing no fruit, Jesus is on a mission to reveal that this very temple Yahweh set up is dead and bearing no fruit. As I mentioned, the temple court was massive. He wasn't driving out everybody. He was there to teach and make a point. He's there to teach from the word of God about what the true nature nature of the temple was supposed to be. See, there was this expectation of the Jews that Jesus would come one day and rid them of the outsider, of Roman oppression, and of the unclean Gentiles. They expected him to march to the temple and to drive out the foreigner and to rid the temple of all the uncleanness. They expected Jesus to do to others what ended up happening to them. This is the point Jesus is making. Jesus is not here to cleanse the temple of the outsider. He's here to cleanse the temple for the outsider. Jesus isn't just here to flip physical tables, but more importantly, to flip their expectations of a Messiah in the way of the upside-down kingdom and to call them to true faith in God, not in a religious system. So he goes to the authority of the scriptures. Look at verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Most likely this is the snapshot of the expositional sermon that Jesus went on and preached from two places, Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm going to read portions from some of those texts because Jesus would have been recalling to the original hearers of this message he preaches this entire context. I'll have it on the screen for you. Isaiah chapter 56 verse 6. I hope you see how it fits in. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, the temple mount, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jeremiah 7 is a scathing rebuke of the temple and the way it operated in the day of Jeremiah. He says, thus says Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and their deeds show this. Do not believe the deceptive words. Just because you call something a temple, a place of worship, a place where God dwells, doesn't mean it really is. Don't be deceived just because the sign says it's a church doesn't mean that God dwells there. He says, you really want to be my people? Look at verse 5. 
If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, we're going to see forgiveness. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, which where my glory resides, has it become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, you might fool everybody else, but I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. It's a scary thing. No one else might see it, but I see past the flowery presentation, I see the truth. Jesus is conjuring up memory of these two Old Testament passages to make his point. Again, he probably expounded the full text and showed how Jerusalem, specifically the religious leaders, had become the oppressors. And that just because it looked like a place of worship does not mean that's what it really was. And the irony of having all this go on during Passover week. This was meant to be a week that was to celebrate the freedom of God's people from oppressors and to show a way for people to get back to God through the sacrifice of lambs. But instead, the once oppressed have now become the oppressors. And instead of helping people worship the one true God, Yahweh, they are hindering and exploiting people. They've made it a den of robbers. This is not a petty thief. This word describes people who lead revolutions and rebels. And ironically, it's the same word they use to describe Jesus later when they accuse him and place him on a cross. This is no small thing. Jesus is making it absolutely clear where he stands on this temple and its rebellious leaders. What he has done would have been utterly shocking and scandalous. Like, I couldn't think of an illustration to help you understand how this would have impacted them. That's why it says the crowd is astonished at his teaching in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes want to destroy him. Mark points out that they hear Jesus curse the temple just as the disciples heard Jesus curse the fig tree. This self-proclaimed Messiah has come and condemned the heart of their system where they sought gain, power, and position at the expense of God's glory, the poor, and the immigrants. And they want to destroy him. This is the first time we see that strong of language used. Yeah, they tried to trip him up in a debate, but they want to get rid of him. They know now that he's trampling on their kingdoms and their territory to the point he must be taken care of. They can't control this king. This whole story hopefully reveals to us about Jesus that he is passionate and zealous about removing barriers to God in systems, specifically those places that claim to be where you would come and find God. And as we keep reading our story, I love what Jesus does. Jesus is not only willing to flip tables and rip out the faithless heart of religious systems, he's also here to do the same for the hearts of individuals, men and women. In verses 20 to 25, there's this conversation between Jesus and his disciples that honestly, at first glance when I read it, I was like, how does this fit in with our story? It seems like Jesus just takes a total different turn here. But as we look at it, it fits perfectly. So Mark 11, verse 19, when evening came so that this whole ordeal happens, they go back out of the city to Bethany. They're coming back down the same path the next morning. And verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. So they've gone back to Bethany. They're on their way back to Jerusalem. Disciples probably had this pit in their stomach. They were kind of with Jesus, but they still maybe thought he was a little crazy at this point. Like, maybe they had that same feeling like when you get in an argument with someone online on Facebook, and then you have to actually go see them in person, and you're like, oh, this is awkward. Like, 
Maybe I, you know, like the disciples are like, here we go. Like, what's going to happen? But they pass by this fig tree, and Captain Obvious Peter says to Jesus, as if he didn't already know, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus, you know, graciously and patiently is probably like, yep, Peter, that's, that's what I said would happen. By now, you know, I thought you would know that. When I tell things to happen, they happen. But he continues to answer them, and he expounds some things further. First, in verse 22, he tells them to have faith in God. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? See, the emphasis here on this statement is not on the perfection or the amount of our faith. It is on the object of our faith. The thing that would have been shocking and scandalous and revolutionary is that he is telling his disciples that because Jesus has come, they can access God directly. Some scholars translate it as you have the faithfulness of God. And then in verse 23, he goes on to say, Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, does this verse mean that we can just move mountains if we just oh, try hard enough? I did that as a kid. Very ineffective, right? Like there were mounds of dirts in our back baseball field and we were supposed to move them. Oh, just pray and it'll be moved, right? Is, is that what's going on? That's not it. First of all, the emphasis and scandalous thing here again would have been that Jesus says, whoever. That's the thing that would have stood out. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain. But beyond that, what's up with this mountain reference? It could be that Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point about the power of God. I think that's a piece of it. I don't think we need to miss that, but I think there's a more complete understanding of what Jesus is getting at. See, as Jesus is having this conversation, you need to remember that they are on their way to a physical mountain, the Temple Mount, where just yesterday he had walked up to and walked in the temple and made a show and taught on the true purpose of the temple. I believe Jesus is making a reference to the fact that he, in himself, who has perfect faith in God, is here to remove every single barrier that stands in the way of access to God in hearts, even if it's the very Temple Mount that Yahweh set up. This is all simply foreshadowing what will happen when the true temple Jesus will be destroyed to eradicate the barrier of sin once and for all. And then he continues to encourage them about this access they have to God in, through prayer. He says in verse 24, therefore I tell you, because um, I'm here to remove mountains, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This verse has been manipulated often. What do we do with this statement by Jesus that whatever we want, we seemingly can receive it if we have enough. I want the new boat. I want the new house. God, just give it to me. I'm just having enough faith. Believe it. Let me definitively say that this does not mean that you can name it and claim it about whatever you want. A prosperity gospel is a false gospel that is damning and destroys countless lives. I don't have time to give the countless references in scripture that promise suffering and pain for the follower of Jesus and that clearly condemn the endless pursuit of obtaining wealth for wealth's sake. So we know that's not it, but what is he saying? I believe that he's saying. In the context of this story, we have to see the context. This story that's about removing barriers and having access to God. That if you ask anything according to this will of God, that barriers are to be removed. That serves to advance his kingdom, not your own. We clearly see he doesn't answer those prayers. Then he will grant it to you. So trust that, yes, God works in systems to remove barriers to faith, but Jesus also encourages us to trust that God works personally and individually in each of your lives through prayer and faith in Jesus. And then when he ends in verse 25, he implores us to forgive our brothers and sisters 
He wants to make sure that his disciples don't hear this promise and think they can manipulate this to serve it for their own purposes. You know, maybe call down fire on the Roman oppressors, on the Roman soldiers, or maybe on someone who just personally offended them by cutting them off in traffic. He tells them they should not become what Jesus hates. They should avoid becoming the very people who set up walls and barriers to access to God by withholding forgiveness. When we withhold forgiveness, we step into the place of God, which is exactly what the temple leaders were doing. Saying we get to, ter- to determine who's in and who's out. And when we withhold forgiveness from our brothers and sisters, we try to take the place of God. And If you really understand what God has done in Christ Jesus, how he has forgiven your trespasses, we will become a people who are quick to forgive. And if you can pray to God with animosity in your heart towards your brother or sister, we must ask if we've truly been forgiven, if we've truly grasped Jesus. So that's a lot, right? We've made our way through this story. But I hope you see the main thing going on here is that Jesus is passionate about removing barriers to God. But even this story in and of itself, it's an amazing story. It's, it's incomplete. Jesus didn't cleanse the entire temple. We've seen that. See, this story is really about the glory of God on display in the face of Jesus Christ, not most clearly seen in a temple, but in the cross and resurrection. This is the good news of the kingdom, church. This is the gospel. This is the hope. See, the earthly temple was never meant to be the final product. It was never meant to be complete. It had its flaws and its inadequacies. It was just a signpost the whole time pointing to the true temple, Jesus. When John talks about Jesus coming to earth, he says he came down and, and dwelt. That word literally tabernacled or templed among men. He is the one who when we couldn't earn our way back to heaven through our good works and our rituals, he brought heaven down. Ever since the garden, the first temple, sin had fractured our way to God. And Jesus is here to put things to right. In John, Jesus prophesied that as the true temple, he would allow himself to be torn down. And that on the cross, this is exactly what would happen. In his body, the true temple mount, Golgotha, Calvary's hill, he allowed himself to be plundered. And this time, not to keep the nations out, but to bring the nations in Not to exploit the poor, but to welcome them in and give them eternal riches in Christ Jesus. Just as he had cursed the earthly temporal temple, so he allowed himself to be cursed and numbered with the transgressors, just as Isaiah prophesied the suffering servant would be. As the one who had done no sin, he allowed himself to be beaten with whips, cut off, and driven outside not just a temple, but outside the city, and was counted as a revolutionary rebel. And little did they know, the revolution he was starting was the final cosmic war on sin and death, where he would bring back humanity inside the garden temple city once and for all. He offered himself up as the true, once and for all, Passover lamb, sacrifice for the sins of the world. He allowed himself as the true temple mount to be thrown into the sea of chaos and death. And he trusted his father perfectly, trusting, not doubting that God's plan would work out. And when he stood, praying on the cross, as the one whose heart was perfectly in tune with his father's cried, forgive them. Forgive these oppressors 
for they know not what they do. They don't understand. These who had exploited his people that made his temple a den of robbers and put them on the cross, Jesus would have been justified in destroying them, but he forgives them. He breathes his last. And when he does, something amazing happens. The veil of the temple was torn. To illustrate that the barrier of sin the one that had kept God and humanity separate since the fall, had once and for all been torn down. And not just in one story of the cleansing of the temple, but forevermore and for all time, the most holy place where God's presence dwelt was torn open, not just to let people come in and get a peek, but to flood the entire cosmos with his glory. And the physical temple that Jesus cursed was permanently dissolved once and for all. He wasn't just here to cleanse it. He was here to do away with it because it was just a signpost and the real thing was here. As he promised when he said in John he would rebuild the temple in three days, referring to his own body, he rises again from the dead, displaying victory over sin and death, proving to his disciples once and for all, proving to the world once and for all that he truly was the son of God, the king over death. And victor over sin. What Jesus was doing in the temple. By removing barriers. To knowing, believing, and worshiping God. He did it on a small scale in the temple. And even a smaller scale with his disciples. When he encouraged them to have faith in God directly. He now does it in the cross and resurrection. On a personal and global scale. Calling in all who thirst to come drink. Of the everlasting water that will never run dry. He has dealt with sin as the final sacrifice. And the call is to turn and trust in this king. See, we can't just be indifferent about this. He can't just be hanging out with us as we build our own kingdoms. He will reveal you to be what you are at some point. So how do we respond? Well, we respond with the scribes and the chief priests that want to put him to death because he interferes with our pursuit of comfort, position, and power. Or... We respond with the disciples who choose to trust him through thick and thin, through imperfect faith in the midst of doubts and through pain, suffering, and even death. Can I implore you? Can I beg you if you don't know this Jesus? He stands with arms ready and willing to receive you. And he'll drive out whoever he needs to for you to come to him. He's calling in those of you who are weary, burnt out by religion, who feel outcast and kept outside by religion, whether systems or individuals. And he's calling you into his kingdom and welcoming you to join the throng of ragged misfits who stand and praise his name. When the writer of Matthew tells the story, he inserts a detail that is incredibly relevant and so beautiful. He teaches on the true purpose of the temple as he did here in Mark. But then Matthew says that he invites the lame and the blind who sit outside the temple. See, these lame and blind beggars sat outside the temple year after year just begging for sustenance. Just give me something so I can can live and I'm numb to life. I just want to experience something. And he invites them into the temple. You don't do this. But what does he do? He heals them. And then he invites a bunch of kids who were the least in this society. And together they start praising the name of God. And it ticks off the religious leaders. And Jesus is like, this is what it's about. And we get a glimpse into what Jesus is doing. When one day in Revelation he calls a people from every generation 
every social class, every culture, every ethnic group, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And around his throne in the eternal temple garden, we see them say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive blessing, honor, and glory. This shows us why Jesus was so passionate about this. Because the glory of God is at stake. This is not just about us being nice people. This is just not about us just tolerating people. I mean, who actually wants to be tolerated anyways? People want to be loved. And God's glory is highlighted when the weak of this age are made strong, when the outcasts are welcomed in, when a diversity of cultures are represented, and when the poor are given places of honor, as we saw when we went through James. Because here's the thing, church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know this, even if you've forgotten. We are all the outcasts. We are the ones who life did not give us sustenance and fulfillment, and so we beg, just give me a taste of something, and we look for it in the systems of this age, and Jesus says, it's about me. I am the true bread of life. And this changes us. We can't grasp this and stay the same. We can't continue to pursue comfort, power, security, safety, and control. This has application for our life now. When we really behold God's glory, we're transformed. It changes us as individuals. Realize that our body, our members, are a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, not to be used for our own gain and for our own purposes and to pursue our own comfort, privilege, and safety, but to be used for His purposes and His kingdom. The members of our body are not our own, they were bought with the price of God's Son. And now they're simply instruments to be used for the kingdom. Any gift you have, that's what it's for. So we pursue holiness within and justice fueled by love without, knowing that God's glory is at stake. And secondly, and just as important, how does this change us corporately as God's new covenant people, the church? This story is so relevant for us as the church. Paul and Peter both show in the writings that the temple is no longer a place, but it is first and foremost Jesus as the chief cornerstone who was rejected and then is building a new temple for all those who are in this King Jesus. And collectively together, we are the new temple, the new people of God who stand as living stones. When I look at your your beautiful faces and I look around like, this is a miracle, church. Like, you guys are living stones. There's no longer just a temple in a singular place that's a witness to the nations of God's glory. It is us in the everyday normal stuff of life it's beautiful and it's incredible. We stand as a witness to all people that anybody who comes, as long as you come through the door of Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ, you are welcome into this new covenant people. That's why Ephesians says the church is used to display the manifold wisdom of God. Yes, yeah, she's got her problems, but she's displaying the glory of God. This is incredible and mightily encouraging, but there's also a terrifying caution. I'm going to apply this song, and I want you to know that this is because we love you, church, and, and we should always know that we can become just like the fig tree in the temple in the times of Jesus. This is terrifying. We can have all the right stuff. We can say all the right things. We can be flowery and put together. We can have slick programs. We can have the best music in the county. We can have the best teachers. We can offer the best for our kids and our students. 
We can be hustling and bustling and busy for Jesus. We can have people coming in and coming out, and our numbers can be growing. And from a distance on our Instagram page or our Facebook page or on the sign out front, we can look as if we have it all together. As if we are on the right track, fulfilling our purpose and bearing fruit. But upon closer inspection, would you, God forbid, find a people who are more passionate about maintaining wealth, privilege, comfort, security, safety, and power than worshiping God as his people? Would you, God forbid, find a bunch of religious gatekeepers who think they get to determine who's worthy to be in and who's worthy to be out? Would you, God forbid, find people more passionate about their political party and their ethnic pride than about being the new people of God who find their purpose as kingdom people, welcoming in all who will come? Would you find, God forbid, that just like the temple, though we might not say it explicitly, for our pursuit of comfort and control, we've crowded others out with our indignant comments and faces when they come around with their baggage and their brokenness? Would you find a people who hold bitterness toward their brother or sister when they are wronged, refusing to forgive as they have been forgiven? Would you find a people who are dismissive and arrogant toward their brothers and sisters, who see things different politically, societally, or culturally, refusing to listen? Would you find a people who aren't bothered that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week in our nation? It's not just a statement, it's true. Would you find a people who are apathetic and unmoved by the fact that there are people groups all across the world who have no access to the good news of this king and that he desires for them to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? And should God find this, he might choose to do as he did in Revelation and remove his presence from our midst essentially cursing us and causing us to wither, or actually as he did with the fig tree in the temple, revealing us to be who we actually are, which is a dead, lifeless, empty shell. Why does this matter? Why do I bring this up? Why do we care? Why do I implore us to be on guard to not move from the truth of the gospel? Here's why. It's not about just being nice people, as I've already said. It's because God's glory is at stake. We're not just nice to be nice In the church, when we display to each other and the world the welcoming, sacrificial, forgiving love that Jesus has shown us, we display his glory. Jesus makes this possible. We can't do this without his work first being done in our hearts. So if we find that sometimes we're acting more like the people in the temple that Jesus drove out, right? People sharing those memes never seem to think that maybe I would have been the one Jesus is driving out. And I'm I'm with you. There's times we, we act that way. Remember that Jesus cried for his father to forgive them too. See, the answer for every single one of us is not finally figuring it out, finally getting it right. It's about running to Jesus. When we get this, we become the bridge builders and the barrier breakers, illustrating to the world in the everyday stuff of life what Jesus did in the temple and on the cross. We are creating a welcoming culture where we celebrate those whom society has cast out. We create a place of unity where we are passionate worshipers of Jesus who desire to see pockets of the eternal temple city that I mentioned in Revelation. We want that to break forth here in Athens, Alabama, all the way to the ends of the world, all the way to the ends of the earth. And can I encourage you, church, like I've seen us do this. I've seen us up close and personal welcoming people who were broken, who were burnt out, who were once outsiders be welcomed and given a home. 
Like, let me encourage you, church. God is moving, and I think I can say definitively, God is here, and he is present, and he is working. And this is the encouraging thing, church. God is going to do this. God is going to flood the cosmos with his glory. It's as good as done. The cross and resurrection prove that. The only question is whether or not we want So let's pray bold, mountain-moving, kingdom-advancing prayers, trusting that Jesus will do the work through Summit Crossing in Athens, Alabama. My closing encouraging word to us, church, is this. Have faith in God. Trust in the work of this king. Repent where you've trusted in yourself and kept others from worshiping him. Let's run to him together, knowing that in Jesus the veil has been torn, there is no middle wall of partition, and we all have access to God the Father in faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together, church, as the band comes up. We want to